I'm Whitney. I'm Danielle. And we are the founders of Sakara Life, on a mission to nourish your body and transform your life. Sakara is a Sanskrit word that describes the action of turning your thoughts into things and manifesting your reality. We believe that who we surround ourselves with, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, the information that we take in, impacts the way we think and therefore who we are. The conversations that follow are with bold thinkers who have had an impact on how we view the world, ourselves, and what it means to live the Saqqara life. The intention of these conversations is to push each of us to greater heights so that we can turn our thoughts into things and all shine our light a little brighter. We are so excited to be on this journey with you. Welcome to the Sakara Life. Over the last few years, since becoming mothers ourselves, we've striven to use our voices and platforms to share our honest, unfiltered experiences around pregnancy and motherhood. Throughout our own journeys, we've shared our personal experiences and struggles with hopes of creating a safe space for all women and to normalize these types of conversations. Today, we are thrilled to welcome on someone we deeply admire in the space whose work challenges the status quo of motherhood and the way that we perceive it. We're joined by the incredible Angela Garbs, who is the author of Like a Mother, an NPR best book of 2018 and the co-host of The Double Shift, a podcast that explores what it means to be a mother in America today. Some of you may recognize her name as she joined us a few months ago as a panelist at our Empowered Motherhood Summit. She is an incredible speaker, and we are so excited to share her wisdom with you all today. Please welcome Angela Garbs. Hi, Angela. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Sakara Life podcast. Hi, Danielle. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we like to start out every podcast asking about your mission, why you're here on earth. What is the gift you're giving? I mean, I know, but I can't wait for <laughs> for the listeners to hear what you have to say. It's such a good question. You've sprung it on me just like a moment ago. And then I was like, oh my God, what is my mission? If I think about it, the first thing that comes to mind is, well, I think my mission is evolving. I don't know that we all have one particular thing. It doesn't jive with my life view to say that there's just one thing. It's dynamic, right? But I would say that for most of my life, I think that my mission has been to really just love and accept myself (laughs) and believe Mm. that I'm enough. Because I really do think if you don't get that right within yourself, I'm not sure how much use and service you can be to other people. It's sort of a selfish mission, but I think it's it's one that's been necessary for me. I grew up in a small town in rural Pennsylvania that was mainly white. I felt a lot of my life on the outside of things or like I just didn't fit in. So I think it's been a journey to get to that place for myself. And not all of us are born with the confidence that some of us are born with. But since I found my work as a writer and have come into my own as a mother and a caregiver, I really think that my mission these days is to help other people see, especially women of color, people who have a similar background to me, to show that they're enough also, leading by example, the best that I can, and also to emphasize how important care is and caring for each other and caring for ourselves. Mm-hmm. I think what you said, well, when you said it about just loving and accepting yourself, it gave me chills. I think that it's a difficult thing for everybody to do, 
no matter what you look like, it's part of the human condition to have this self-criticism or to want to fit in and feel like you don't, even if you look like you fit in. Mm -hmm. And I think it's easier for some than others. But on some level, there's a little voice in the back of our head saying, you're not enough. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not rich enough, thin enough, whatever it is. Do you feel like you have come to a place where you accept yourself now as you are? How are you feeling today? Yeah. I mean, it's a good question. And to answer it, honestly, I guess I put in a lot of work or just like living, right? I'm 43 now. So maybe like sometime between like 35 and 40, I was like, got it. I'm here. I have (laughs) arrived, right? I have gone through a lot. I have put in time. I have put in work. I have surrounded myself with the people I want to be with. I'm doing the work that feels right to me. And I'm just listening to myself. And I felt like I had gotten to a place where I was like, all right, cool. I love and accept myself. That's not really the way it works, is what I'm finding. Um, (laughs) It's not an end destination. Yeah, no, exactly. But you know what? That is the thing that I didn't know. And it's Mm. the last couple of years of my life have been, oh, it's not an end destination. This is actually work. Loving yourself is a thing you have to do every day, right? Yes. Yeah, it's an action. Yeah. Today I feel good because I feel like I'm very in touch with the fact that like, you know, I'm, I'm doing my work right now. Like I was saying to you guys, I'm away on a little writing retreat at a cabin in the woods and I'm away from my family and I'm remembering what it's like to be myself and to follow my mm. own thoughts or just to get up and do what I want to do, right? And not feel guilty that I'm not doing something else or I don't know. But so basically just that feeling of it's good work. It's the best kind of work to accept yourself and to love yourself and to remind yourself that it's okay Like what you were saying, Whitney, there's a little voice that's telling you it's not enough or there's something and you can acknowledge that voice. And instead of going down that path and following that voice, just being like, I hear you, but I'm choosing not to Mm -hmm. listen to you today. Right. Or like you can just go hang out in that room right now. I have stuff to do. I love (laughs) that you had two missions. I found a theme now. We've done many podcast episodes now and heard the answer to that question from both men and women. And typically men, when they speak, when they answer the question, they have a mission that's very personal and focused on themselves. And typically when women answer the question, it's an outward focusing, like I want to change the world kind of thing. And I love that you had both. (laughs) I mean, I kind of cheated with the... Well, I actually (laughs) think both is really important, right? Because to impact the world, I think you first have to be in a really good place, you know, to impact the world and in a positive way. And I I feel like that's what you've done with your work and your writing thus far is what were you confronted with? How did you work through it? And kind of sharing these truth bombs in order to help others maybe have a faster evolution or a, (laughs) a quicker understanding so you don't have to learn the hard way. Yeah. Or just realizing you're not alone and working through these things. And I never am like, this is how it should be for you. or This is what you should do. But I think storytelling and sharing my experiences, it's an emotional invitation. It's opening a door. Even if your experiences are very different from mine, if you can connect emotionally, then it's easier to have a conversation about what do we have in common and what are our values and how do we want to move forward, right? But yeah, I mean, I think in some ways writing is a very selfish act because you have to assume that people might want to hear what you have to say and that what you have to say is important. (laughs) And I think I struggled with that for a while. I'm like, who am I? And then I got to this place where I was like, I mean, why not me? 
And people seem to want to hear what I have to say. Why not me? Yes. And what I realized, though, is that that's the work that I've had to do for myself. But I feel best when my writing is of service. I feel really good being in service of people. Mm -hmm. And I never want to be in service in a way that sacrifices myself. But it just makes me feel good. (laughs) It makes me feel good. And that really feels like what the work that I'm supposed to be doing right now is. And that was what I was going to ask is how much of the self-confidence and self-acceptance that you've found today comes from knowing that you are in service to others, that the work, your life, that what you're doing is helping, even if it's just one other person, I think that that can still be motivating, but you're helping so many people now with the amazing book that you've written and with all of your work, how much of your confidence and and that comes from helping others? Yeah, that's interesting. It's definitely a factor in it, but I think it's really important for me. This is some of the work I've been doing really in the last year or two in my own life and in therapy is realizing that it's very seductive to feel that you're of use to someone or that you're helping them or that you get this validation from them. Mm. I feel like it's helped me get to another level, but there was a time, and this is where like the complication of motherhood came in, right? I think that there was a time when I was having a hard time defining myself outside Mm -hmm. of the roles that I played for other people. After I had my second child, which was three years ago, and then I published my book a few months after that. So the two are deeply entwined. And at that time, when you have a newborn, you have to prioritize somebody else because they're not more important than you, but if you don't tend to them, they will die, right? Like, so it's very like... It's urgent. (laughs) Yes, it's urgent. And you just kind of get into that mode. And then I published this book. And then I was feeling like when you publish a book, you can say like, I did it for myself, but really like you have to kind of care what people think because people are reviewing it. You want people to buy your book. You want people to hear your message. But I think for me, that sort of success and then also being a mother again, I kind of just got really caught up in living Mm. for what other people thought of me or doing things for other people. And that kind of, for me, I sort of lost the boundary there for a while and kind of lost track of what do I just want? Who am I? Why am I doing these things? Like, And so it's, again, it's like that sort of like negotiation. And so I think now I see it as being in service and helping other people and being of use to people. It bolsters me and it makes me feel very confident, but I'm sort of watchful or I don't want it to become too important. I want it to go hand in hand with how I'm feeling about myself and feeling true to knowing who I am if I didn't do any of this stuff and feeling like that's enough. Even if I wasn't helping people, right? I would still be living a good and worthy life. I just think that's the hardest thing for people. That's been the hardest hardest thing thing, for me. Like feeling whole and complete just as you are. Yeah. Yes. It's a lot of work. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not for some, but can we get to your book and can you tell us, I feel like you just briefly touched on motherhood, but why did you decide to write like a mother and what were you in service to exactly? Yeah. Honestly, I think what really started that was that I was sort of in service to myself. (laughs) So I have two daughters. My oldest is six. My younger one is three. This is madness. So I I gave birth to my daughter and then I started a job, a brand new job, eight weeks later. Oh, man. And I was working as a staff food writer at a local newspaper and I was breastfeeding. So (laughs) there was just a lot going on. I was putting in a lot of work every day. And I also was like, okay, so I'm thinking about food. I'm eating food. (sighs) I'm writing about food. I'm also producing food. Like I am food. <laughs> and this is kind of how it all started where I was you like, I, food. <laughs> and so my whole life was thinking about this. And 
when we were in an editorial meeting, someone was like, you've been on staff long enough. You should probably think about writing a feature. What's on your mind? And I was like, I'm really interested in breast milk. <laughs> and no one in that <laughs> office cared. This is not a publication that was known for writing anything about motherhood. But the thing is, I just had all of these questions, questions that I had been accumulating throughout pregnancy and postpartum. And one of the questions that I had, though, was I think that people face tremendous pressure to breastfeed. We're told breast is best, which kind of implies that formula is inherently bad and that it's immunologically better for a baby. And, you know, I believe we are mammals. The thing that defines us as a mammal is that we produce milk to feed our young. So I was like, okay, I believe this is optimal nutrition for a baby. But the reality is you need time to breastfeed. And when 25% of mothers go back to work two weeks after giving birth, it's unfair. Oh my God, to- is that the number? Yes. That's insane. Yeah. That's in-, that's in America? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's really unfair to demand that people breastfeed or put that pressure without support. Anyway, but my question was, okay, so people say immunologically it's better for a baby, which I was like, okay, I believe that. But then when I asked, how does that work exactly? No one could tell me, no doctor or nurse. And I was like, this seems like basic stuff. Mm-hmm. I want to know. And so the thing about being a journalist is that you can find an expert and call them up and ask them a question and they'll feel obligated to give you an answer, right? But if I'm just Angela at home wondering about breast milk, no one feels like I'm owed an answer. (laughs) This is getting to be a long answer. But so I found this evolutionary biologist who studied mammalian milk and breast milk. And she explained to me that the way it works immunologically is that when an infant suckles at the mother's breast, there's a vacuum that's created. Some of the infant's saliva is sucked into a mother's nipple. There are receptors in the mammary gland that read that. And if it detects pathogens, it compels the mother's body to create antibodies specific to that infection. And she tells me this, and I'm like, what the fuck? Like, why are, this is incredible. Like, why aren't we talking about this all the time? Yeah. Right. So then I wrote this article. Turns out more people than me, even though the editorial staff wasn't interested, the article went viral. It's the paper's number one read article in its 25 year history, still is to this day. And it was because of that that someone was like, Do you want to write a book? And I was like, Sure, I'll write a book. I don't want to write a book just about breast milk. I have so many questions. Mm. So many questions. I had two pregnancy losses before I got pregnant, right? I wanted to know about my placenta, which is this organ that I grew that no one ever talks about, right? I wanted to know why if hundreds of thousands of people give birth every week, Mm. why do we not know what it's going to feel like? Why is it harder for some people and easier for others? And I really wanted to know why after giving birth, I felt so much like myself, but also completely alienated from myself. And so I just had all of these questions that I never got around to answering. And I was like, if so you're going to give me the time and the space to do this research, that's what I want to do. And what's interesting is that every expert that I talked to, whether it was someone who studied pregnancy loss or the placenta or breast milk, everyone said, compared to what we should know about pregnancy and birth, arguably the most essential human process, (laughs) we know nothing because we've never valued female reproductive health enough. We've never valued it financially, culturally, or scientifically. And so a lot of the things that people are researching and discovering have all been done in like the last 20 years. And that's so recent. And we could be supporting people so much more and helping people have healthier experiences and having just a healthier society that values women and mothers and caregiving. And so that's the very long answer of why I wrote my book and what kind of set me on this path. I never thought that I'd write a book about motherhood. That was not something that I saw in my 
career path. And then here I am where this is the space that I am occupying. And I think it's so fascinating and I think it's Mm. relevant to everyone. And I'm tired of it being treated as a niche topic. I want us to talk about it like this is the most fundamental stuff of our society. Right. We all get birthed. Yes. Everybody might not give birth, but Mm -hmm. we all get birthed. Yeah. And so it's part of our experience as a human and in the world and new people are getting birthed every day. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's an important topic for the entire world, the entire planet. Yeah. And not taboo. And I just read (laughs) some quote the other day that said 70% of pharmaceutical drugs are given to women, yet most of them are never tested on women. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, I the believe the trends that. and the why behind all the things you just listed have infiltrated, or rather, I guess, like are the foundation on which so many of our experiences are as a human. Those core beliefs that brought you to all those questions and why they weren't answered, those cultural core beliefs. Mm-hmm affect us in so many ways, even just outside of birth. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the things that I learned is that it wasn't until I think it was either 1993 or 1991 that Congress passed a law saying that if you receive money for your clinical trials, which is any research institution gets some kind of federal funding, if you receive federal money for your clinical trials, you have to include women and minorities. That was only like 25 years ago that that was required. And I think we don't spend enough time talking about what we are up against. (laughs) It is baked into our institutions. It's baked into our very definitions of health and of being a person is that a, a person is presumed to be a cis white male and everyone else is some sort of an anomaly or some sort of aberration or some sort of lesser than version than that, right? That's very real. And even if we're making progress individually, right, on the individual level or culturally, until institutional ideas evolve, we're always going to be up against that. I mean, your book goes into so many incredible topics. Can you talk about one that just either moved you the most in your research, moved you the most or surprised you the most? I mean, I personally love when you talk about how your mother didn't have all the resources and all the like how-to books. And yet you turned out just fine. Um, and that mm-hmm. we have all these resources and are made to feel yeah. depending <laughs> on the day, I feel like even. There's this trendy way to parent. Like there's a trend of the day and you can mm-hmm. feel like if you're not doing it, then somehow you're a bad parent. So like it just got me thinking like, is more information always better when it comes to motherhood and birthing bodies and parenthood? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's complicated, right? So the simple answer is yes. I think more information is always better, right? I think when we can make truly informed choices, like in medical settings or in birthing settings, we talk about informed consent, right? Nothing should be allowed. People should not be allowed. Medical people should not be able to do things to you unless you have a full understanding of what the benefits and the risks are and you are saying yes to that, right? So that's the sort of information that I'm talking about. And information for me is like, I wrote this book because the pregnancy guidebooks I read were, again, guidebooks, like how to do this, how to do Mm -hmm. that. This is good. This is bad. Don't put your cell phone near your stomach. Don't microwave things, right? Like, And I was like, I don't care about that. I want to know like what's happening in my body. That's the information I wanted. I wanted to know like what is a placenta? How do I grow an entirely new organ alongside of an entirely new person? 
I, yes. I really, really needed to know about that. <laughs> um, and so I think that the problem, the way you were talking about with like trendy parenting, the way I see that is like, because we live in a capitalist society, the way capitalism perpetuates itself is that it has to like sell you a product. Right. Mm-hmm. And so when we figure something out, like maybe developmentally or like, you know, this is perhaps better for children, right? I don't know. Something like, right, obviously you don't want BPA in your plastics, right? And you don't want to be perhaps microwaving that to put that in your food. Just something like that. I'm just drawing this example, right? But then the idea is then that we have to create a whole line of products and then you have to buy them. And if you can't afford them, then you're somehow putting your child at risk, right? These kinds of, this idea that I think that we're all doing the best we can with what we have. And some people have more resources than others. But this idea that it's like this value judgment and then it becomes, I think this is a function, you know, then of like patriarchy of like we, these sort of like manufactured mommy wars, you know, there's better ways to do things. It's all distraction to me because the fundamental problem is that no one has enough supporter resources and we're sort of operating from this scarcity mindset. Yeah. Sorry. That's my like analysis of everything. No, <laughs> of every yeah, system. I but- agree more. You, yeah. you take it deep, for sure. <laughs> but I think it, it goes to that. I mean, this is the most basic stuff. And I think that really, yeah. like, I just think, like, it's fine. Like, I think that we should be, based on information, we should be evolving our understanding of parenting and, like, how we mother and how we care for children. And there should be, like, better things available to people, better formula, right? Better diapers, things that are sustainable for the environment. All of that stuff is really important. But it's when we lose track of it and it becomes this thing of hitting people against each other or like this trend mm-hmm. is somehow better or more worthy. I think that's like, then we kind of get lost. Yeah, it's a fine line, right? Because mm-hmm. on the other side of the coin, it's like we've lost such a sense of community. And so what I'm doing, parenting two young children, a lot of other people have done. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't have, With I don't less, have, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I feel very fortunate. I have a sisterhood of women, but I was actually the first that became a mother in my really close group. And so it's like all the grandmothers and the aunts. And like, I didn't have that. I didn't have women that generational ancestors, et cetera, mm-hmm. that had been through this. And so I do find a lot of the information out there important. And and I think what you're speaking to is it's just such a fine line between being able to say, hey, this worked for me and hey, this is the right way to parent. And there is one way. Yeah. And now for a quick break. Today, we are so excited to tell you about one of our products, the Foundation Prenatal. As a pregnant mama, I couldn't find a product on the market that was both comprehensive and clean. So we had to make it ourselves. The foundation prenatal includes everything you know a prenatal should have, plus so much more. It contains a superfood-based multivitamin and algae omega, choline for baby brain development, macro minerals, our complete probiotic formula, and of course, If you are a Saqqara light, you know you love our greens. So we included a super green supplement in there as well. And just like we have such high quality standards when it comes to our Saqqara life nutrition program and the food we're putting into our bodies, we come to these supplements with the same level of standards of quality and cleanliness. We really couldn't find anything out there on the market that met those standards. And so we had to create these 
any time of your life, it's important to be putting clean ingredients into your body, but especially during this time when you are building a life inside of you or feeding a life straight from your body. So these are the highest quality supplements out there on the market. Try them. You're going to love them. I used to have bottles and bottles of different supplements all lining my counter and have to count them out and put them all together. And this just makes it so easy. They all come together in one convenient packet that you can take with your morning meal or before you go to bed. It's all food-based, so it's really easy on the stomach, especially during those times in pregnancy when anything can be a little bit harsh on the stomach. So whether you're pregnant or postpartum and breastfeeding needing to replenish some of those nutrient stores, this is a great option to ensure you're getting everything your body needs. And for a limited time, we're gifting you $25 off your first purchase of the foundation prenatal. Simply go to sakara.com forward slash prenatal, P-R-E-N-A-T-A-L, and at checkout, use the code PODCAST25. That's S-A-K-A-R-A dot com forward slash P-R-E-N-A-T-A-L and enter PODCAST25 at checkout for your $25 off your first time purchase. Okay, now back to our chat. I mean, I think about how most of us would Google something about parenting or motherhood before we would call our own mother, maybe, or or many of us would. I don't want to say mm-hmm. most of us, but I think that's telling. And I think that's also a product of, I really appreciate what you said, Daniel, because it brings me back to like, before we medicalized childbirth, which is a very distinct 20th century thing we did in America, at the turn of the century, 50% of babies born in the United States were birthed by midwives. And midwives, by the way, most of those women were immigrants or Black women. So it was very much like a working women's job. And that knowledge, that is that ancestral womanly knowledge that was like, this is wisdom and this is knowledge, and but it's not formalized, right? It was very much based in lived experience. And that was real expertise, though. And so at the turn of the century, like when people created medicine and medical schools and the field of obstetrics and gynecology, there was actually a very active and pointed movement to discredit midwives and say that they were like dirty, right? Or that they were like ignorant. But the men who were going to schools and doing this didn't actually know more. Like, <laughs> And they were like, well, we'll catch up. We'll learn. I mean, that's a really important thing. That was like motherhood, pregnancy, birth. It was taken out of the hands of women and then put into the hands of experts, most of whom were rich white men. And we're sort of living with that now. And I think the information and the trending parenting and that kind of thing, it's right. all continuing to remove things away. And I think that there's been a movement to reclaim some of that which I think is really important. But again, the way a lot of that has been presented as like as a lifestyle to be sold and to be bought and to like hold over other people. It's not that sort of community-based knowledge. It's not hearing diverse stories. We're still kind of really attached to this idea of expertise coming from somewhere else. And I think women are also actively discouraged from trusting themselves. The idea is that like, how could you possibly 
no, there's got to be someone else out there who knows better for you in your pregnant and vulnerable state. Meanwhile, you're very powerful and transformative, right? It's like you're in tune with the most basic thing. You could try to listen to yourself and see where that takes you. Yeah. And also it's just talk about the discrediting. I mean, it's so scary to have a medical professional present you with all the things that can go wrong and give you a, this is what I think you should do. It's Mm. really hard to listen to your inner voice when it's one thing if you're just making decisions for yourself, but then you're making decisions for yourself and and your child. And then it's even, (laughs) it's even more overwhelming. And actually I, I had a, an emergency C-section with my first. And then with my second, I had wanted a home birth with my first, obviously did not happen. My second, I really wanted to try. And everyone told me it was going to be really hard to find a midwife that would do, they call it an HBAC, a home birth, a home birth vaginal birth after C-section. And I ended up finding a midwife and she was amazing in her seventies, been doing it her whole life. And all the way through pregnancy, I was very, I was very fortunate. I didn't have any red flags or issues, et cetera, but he was two weeks late. Mm. And so in the last two weeks, as a mother who had had a C-section, like if I had been with an OB, they wouldn't even let me go two weeks late. Yeah. So by the time I was yes. two weeks late, it was either I go in for a C-section or my midwife lets me wait it out and we try for a home birth. And I lost my shit in yeah. those last two weeks because mm-hmm. I was just hanging by this thread of, I mean, we all are hanging by a thread in those moments, but I really felt it. and. I just remember I gave birth on a Sunday and the Saturday before I, I was losing my mind and I called my midwife and she said, I'm coming over right now. And she came over and she just talked me down and she did all the tests to make sure the baby was fine. I was fine. She's like, you are both healthy. What you are fearing are stories that you've been told, but let me tell you your story. Let me tell you what's happening to you right now. And in that moment, I was like, oh my God, I'm just so grateful that I have this grandmother energy, this woman, this midwife who, as you said so beautifully, Angela, has this lived experience because there's some things that just can't be medicalized. And when they are, they're made to feel like they're so polarizing. Mm -hmm. It's like dangerous or safe. It's like one or the other. Yeah. Like what's your definition of safe? It's yours is different from mine is different from Whitney's, right? We all have different definitions. And it's the spectrum. You know, one of the things I loved about your book is in this idea of empowerment, it is getting back to just knowing your options because the only reason I had, I ended up having an empowered pregnancy and birth was because I was lucky enough to know all my options in a world where most women don't even, I mean, I'm deep into wellness. I would consider myself a hippie at heart and grew up in a new age town. And when I was pregnant, I was like, what's the difference between a midwife and a doula? And like, I knew nothing. And then you have to do this crash course in what it means to bring a human into the world. And you're on and a you're time timeline <laughs> for that crash yeah. course. Yeah. 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 It's, I was thinking about how just when you were talking, like, again, with information and options, I have a family practice. We have a family physician. I should also say, like, aspects of Western medicine are great. I had two C-sections. I needed them. So I'm grateful for those things. But I'm talking about overall, again, at the institutional level, what do we lose when that becomes the standard? So 
we have a family physician and I was also hoping for a vaginal birth after my first C-section. So we were talking about it. He's like, I don't see any reason why you couldn't do it. And he was like, but I do need to tell you that your risk for like uterine rupture does go up after you've had a C-section. And this is where I was so glad that I had spent all this time researching and doing what I do. And I looked at him, I was like, yes, but I know that the studies say it goes from something like right. 12% to 14% or something even lower than that, something like 6% to 8%. And he was, even like, lower. Yeah. Yeah, he was like, I guess I should know that I can't really pull that past you. <laughs> like you're not going to not check that bit of information. That's such right? a great example. It's like you have to put it in context. Like, yes, there is an increased risk. Like, there's risk in everything, right? And that's the thing is like what we should be asking people is like, what level of risk are you comfortable with? And I remember too, when I was, my baby, my second baby was transverse. So she was sideways and she did not want to move. And I spent like a month oh like gosh. with moxibustion sticks near my foot. I was doing inverse things off the couch. Like I was putting like cold packs and hot packs at the base of my uterus trying to get her to turn. And as we were discussing before the episode started, she has this energy that is like, she's just only going to do what the hell she wants to do. And she wasn't moving. <laughs> and so <laughs> I actually ended up having a manual version, which was successful. But so anyway, so I had gone to see, they refer you to so she, they So they pushed her head down? They turned her in like a really, wow. like this amazing woman came in and just moved her. Um, wow. And that wow. was pretty incredible. <laughs> but previous to that, I had gone because I had had a previous C-section and because the baby was transverse, they referred me to an OB to have an appointment. And I was like, sure, I'll go. I understand. And it was very like, so you're going to get a C-section at 40 weeks. You have to do that. And I was like, no, I'm waiting. I'm going to see if this baby turns. Like, And then she didn't have any of the context of me and she wasn't interested in learning any of that. And then she said something critical of my cervix. <laughs> You know, something to the effect of how it was like, maybe you have an incompetent cervix or some kind of something. And it was just this thing. And she was like, also, you're over 40. And I had to stop myself from being, which then she was, there's a greater likelihood of infant mortality. And I was like, bitch, if my baby dies, it is not because I'm 40. Yeah, right? seriously. It was this thing where I just completely shut down in that meeting. And I felt really like, you know, and I didn't have to take her advice, right? I knew enough that I didn't need to. I was just kind of doing this to check a box, right? But I felt so glad that I had a full understanding again of my options. It's hard not to turn into a patient in settings like that. And I was like, if I didn't have the feelings that I had of confidence and faith in what I'm doing, I could have been convinced to do something that I didn't want to do. And that just wouldn't have been a good experience. Yeah. It's a disempowering experience. Yeah. I have forgotten yeah. how much I hate that woman. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I so feel you. I so feel you not to just like keep talking about this. But when I went in my VBAC and I found out I was pregnant, I went to my practitioners that birthed my first baby and they were practitioners I had to transfer to last minute in my first pregnancy because of a, a, an issue. And I had my C-section with them. And so I'm in my first appointment. We just found out there's a heartbeat. So I'm of course excited. And the next thing they have me do is sign a waiver saying that infant mortality is increased with a vaginal birth after C-section. And I'm like, I didn't even get a minute to celebrate. Like, we're already talking about like the scary stuff. And I was with yeah. like, midwives. They weren't home birth midwives. They were hospital midwives. But still, I was still with midwives. And so it's also to say, like, I feel like one of the many things you're saying is it's really one of the really important aspects of having an empowered 
experience is to really have the knowledge and the resources like in your book and other people's experiences, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And I I couldn't agree more. There's one other like aspect of this to the context that I want to add, which is that, I mean, a couple of years ago, I was when the New York Times like launched their parenting site. And I wrote a thing that was like how to advocate for yourself in the delivery room. And I interviewed a doctor out of LA. I think his name is Emilio. Anyway, he was, he was great. And he said the thing that I think a lot of us suspect, and it was important that it came from a physician. This is why I think we really have to think about like listening to ourselves and because we are there to protect ourselves and our baby, right? That is like an instinctual thing that people have. And I don't think that we need to know that that is what parents are there to do. They are not this idea of like that they have some sort of other motive. Anyway, sorry, I'm losing track. But when he talked to me, what he said was we go into a medical setting and we assume that doctors are making decisions based on what is best for us. And he was like, and there are many doctors who do that. He was like, but unfortunately, the way the medical system is set up, the way the healthcare system is set up, and because we live in a litigious society where like people fear lawsuits and want to cover their own ass, the truth of the matter is that many providers make decisions that are not necessarily based on what is best for a patient. And they are based on like what is best for them and what is best for them, you know, if something should go wrong, right? It's one thing like for women to say that, right? That that's what they believe or that's the feeling that they have gotten from their experiences. But when you hear like, it's important to have someone who's like in medical establishment Mm. say that and acknowledge that because that's true. And you just told us about how incredible our bodies are that they can read a baby's saliva and then produce what the baby needs to boost its immune system, you know, creating food out of your boob. Yeah. (laughs) So what else is the body capable of? And if we're able to tune into that body intelligence and listen to our gut and listen to our instincts, maybe it has more information at certain times than what somebody else externally is able to tell us. Yes. I mean, I think ideally for me, it's a conversation, right? Between a provider who sees you as an individual, right? And, And the individual who is trusting in their body and believing in the wisdom that's there. And I think we're very attached to binaries, right? (laughs) Like in this society, Mm -hmm. like good and bad, right and wrong. And the idea too, it's got to be either like a deeply medicalized birth or one where you're like in the woods, right? Or like in your birthing tub at home. And it doesn't have to be, I don't, I want there to be more of a bridge, right? And so that also people can realize that during the transformative experience of labor and birth, what you want might change, what you feel comfortable with might change. What is going on in your body might change. And and you don't have to be stuck in one side, right? One is not better than the other. Like it is, it's a journey, right? Yeah. The health and safety of mother and child are what matters. Who cares Absolutely. exactly how we all get there? Right? And I think that, like you were saying, a lot of people now, what's kind of trending is this perfectly natural home birth and If you can't have that, then that can create a feeling like you failed Mm -hmm. or that you weren't good enough or all of these different things in your mind. And I think as a a mother or a parent overall, we get a lot of these different feelings from society. Like I think back to even in 
the 1950s or in the 60s and what a homemaker looks like and taking care of your child and being that mom in the little dress with the vacuum and how that kind of visual has impacted where we are today and how we feel about needing to care for our children and be that type of mother. But really, motherhood or parenthood can look, just take on so many different visuals and look completely different. And I'd love to hear a little bit about your perspective on the perception of mothers and how it's changed over the years. And how do you view it today? I think that it's important to I always want to like go back and like contextualize things and put things in a historical perspective, which is like the idea that a mother is in charge of the home and that there is this like grand distinction between the home, home work, which is invisible and domestic um, and not paid and not valued. And the real work that happens like outside of a Mm. home in a factory or something that is completely constructed, right? (laughs) Like that was created like before women used to like, in feudal Europe, women were like butchers and smiths and like women worked as midwives and healers, right? There wasn't a sphere that was dedicated to women. That was like a creation and it became a thing because we had like private property and people had to go out and work and became workers for employers, right? So they needed domestic work to happen. They needed domestic work to be free, right, in order for capitalism and this economic system to work. And because women gave birth, they were sort of deemed like the people who needed to be in the home. And and we've been sold this idea that women are natural caregivers or that men are somehow not. And there are people who identify, I mean, I, I love being a caregiver, right? But it's only one aspect of my identity. It's not like the defining thing. And I think there's a great sense of identity and power that can come from that. But the idea that that's what you're destined to do is something that has been sold to us and pushed down our throats. Like cultural messaging around that is really, really strong. So yeah, like my number one thought on that is the idea that a mother stays at home and does that work is a creation. Children would be out in the fields with people working when we worked in like communities, right? This like nuclear individualized family is a very recent invention. I guess I just would also like to say we don't have to live that way. I mean, it's hard to be at odds with society, but I'm thinking about, I don't, I don't want us to live this way. You know, the pandemic has shown when we're all just like locked down with our individual miseries and like domestic chores like it's really lonely right i want to have like more communal ways of life i want to do like housework together i want to go to my friend's house and help them build a fence while the children watch each other and we ignore them right like (laughs) there's different ways of like of being in that so i think the idea of i just feel like we should do parenthood and motherhood how we want fuck the script that we've been given again like listen to yourself what feels better doing it all on your own. Also, the idea of this 1950s housewife, the perfect woman in the apron with the vacuum and like with her like microwave, whatever, like we all know it doesn't look like that. Motherhood is like so dirty. There's so many fluids. (laughs) I know. And today we have the Instagram mom, Mm -hmm. right? Where, and her house looks perfect and her kids are all wearing the perfect outfit. And you're like, Oh, maybe I'm not a great mom because no, my all... kids have been wearing the same shirt for the past four <laughs> days with the, you know, food yeah, smashed and it's on just, it. You need to remember that's just all constructed. You know, that's an image that someone's putting out there that's like curated and like possibly styled. That is just not right. like it's not real. The thing that's real is what you're living every day. I don't know. I just feel like every day 
comes down to me like on my hands and knees with a sponge like <laughs> cleaning like food like and somehow I'm like how is it that I've never moved past this like every day my children are like yeah. getting older and yet somehow I'm just still here cleaning things with a sponge like on my hands <laughs> no. and knees. I literally was just having a text message this exact text message with a girlfriend of mine who has kids two kids they're the exact same age as mine and she's like can you just send me a picture at the end of the day of like what your apartment looks like so that I feel better? And I was like, it's like a tornado with a side of hurricane. (laughs) It's like, and it's every single day, but I did want to just touch on, I love this notion of, you know, we get to do family our own way. And even in talking about women that don't want to have children, my husband and I were just talking last night about how vaginas are so in there's all these candles that are like, this is what my vagina smells like. And there was, a bunch of wheat paste posters all over New York city about like vagina something. And it's just like all the rage, which is awesome. I guess not, I guess, I mean, it is awesome, but (laughs) I guess I feel like there's like something missing out of the equation. I feel like in that narrative, it's also really chic and cool to be a mother right now. Mm. And I don't hear in the conversation, like it's chic and cool to be a woman or have a body that is capable of birthing and still choose to not And Mm -hmm. I don't know, just wanted your thoughts because I've heard you talk about identity several times. And I personally, even though I wasn't the type of person that was like counting down the days till I could have children and I have to have children by this age, I still kind of knew and it felt like it was part of my identity, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think my first thought on that is it goes back to this idea of like, we can't just celebrate a vagina and love a vagina. We have to make a candle or incense that smells like it and sell it to people, right? Just sell to something. To me, it's like right? if vaginas are really cool, then like everyone should know how to- Leave ha- them alone. Everyone, yeah, everyone should know that it's it belongs to the individual. And yes. also like we should have comprehensive pleasure-based sex education that guarantees that everyone with yes. a vagina knows how to have a mind-blowing orgasm, right? Like if we're going to like really value it, let's value it all the way in all the ways that, that are actually important. <laughs> So I think Have that you that's... read Wednesday Martin's book, Untrue? No. Oh my gosh, you have to read it. Okay. It's exactly what you're talking about. It's basically why women are made to feel like we're not as sexual as men and that sex is always in the context of a man. And we've been taught that women were inherently less sexual than men. And I don't know, I think you'd really enjoy it. Yeah. Again, it's the same thing. It's like, guess what? A lot of the stuff that we've grown up with believing or is like just true in fact is lies or it's just like made up a recent invention. You know, I think that it's really, again, to go back to like, this is a theme. It's like, this is built into institutions. This is the way it feels hard because it's supposed to be. We have to actively unlearn a lot of this stuff. But in regards to like the identity of being a mother or not being a mother, like I was ambivalent for a long time. And we don't talk about that either. It's either like you want to have kids or you don't. Right. A lot of people are sort of in this gray area for a long time. But one of the things I it makes me think of is how I'm here away for a few days, away from my children, and we are always trying to create opportunities, right, for parents to live like non-parents, like they don't have children. But it's a good reminder that raising children, which is the next generation of like workers, consumers, like if you're into capitalism, or like caretakers, leaders, just the next generation of people, we need children, right? This is not an individual hobby or responsibility that people are doing. It is like a societal responsibility to raise the next generation of people. And so I think about how like, it's great if you don't want to have children, but that doesn't mean that you can't have a a meaningful relationship with young people or that you shouldn't be interested in them. So I'm thinking about how, how do we create opportunities for people who don't want 
to have their own children to realize what it's like to be a caretaker or a mentor or to be part of the community of raising young people. Young people are not some like, in the United States, we really hide them away, children. But if, like in lots of other countries, they're just like at the dinner table. They're they're out, you know what I mean? Like fathers have uh, parental leave and are like with their children at the park, you know? Like I remember being in Berlin and walking around and being like, I guess there's a lot of dads like on vacation right now or something. <laughs> and then I realized, no, that's just like, that's just how society is set up, right? There's another way of doing things. And I just think that the idea of more community responsibility for for everyone, for children, for older people, you know, like that's a really, there should be ways to provide care for people that are outside of the identity of mother or parent, mm. whether that's like auntie or whether that's, again, like a mentor, right? Maybe little children aren't your bag, but you really think 12-year-olds are cool, right? Like how to... How to have people who are not parents connect with children, I think, is really important. And I think also would give more people security in their identities overall. I love that. That was a beautiful answer. To end our conversation, we would love for you to give a light work practice to our Sakara Light listeners. Something to help them take what we've talked about today and put it into action so that they can go out and shine their lights a little bit brighter. Yeah, One thing that comes to mind is I think that many of us are very good at being generous with other people. You know, if someone comes to you and says, like, I'm a terrible mother, like, or my house is a mess, you'd be like, you're just trying to get through the day. But then we are unable often to extend that generosity to ourselves. So I think like a little bit of work is to really try to develop that practice of to be as generous with yourself as you would be to someone else. And so if you find yourself feeling down about something or questioning something that you're doing, to ask yourself, what would I say to me if I was my best friend? <laughs> I'm not sure if that fits exactly into what you're talking about. It's perfect. About, but that's, I love this practice. I think that it's something that I do and, I've, and it's kind of surprising to me. I catch myself more often than I would like to admit, meaning to tell myself to like give myself the same grace that I would give somebody else. That's beautiful. And perfect. especially in... This time of Danielle and I are both mothers with young kids and I think trying to do a lot. I know I can get down on myself at certain times and just remember we're doing the best that we can and have that grace. So thank you for that reminder and just even being aware, like having awareness around that thought, oh, I'm thinking negatively or I'm putting a lot of pressure on myself or whatever it is, taking the time and even mothering myself a little bit, I think could go a long way. Yeah. So thank you for that. You're so welcome. Thank you so much, Angela. Thank you. Thank you both so much for having me. I really appreciate it. If you have a Sakara story that you would like to share with us, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at sakarastories at sakaralife.com. That's S-A-K-A-R-A-S-T-O-R-I-E-S at sakaralife.com or send us a DM at sakaralife. Don't forget to hit subscribe for the Sakara Life podcast and share this episode with anyone you think needs to hear what we talked about today. And don't forget about the light work. It might feel a little hard, a little uncomfortable, but it's supposed to. The whole idea is that we lean into what's uncomfortable so we all get to shine our lights a little brighter. And we'll see you on the other side, Sakara Lights. <laughs> <laughs>